This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents Part 1 of Ernest Hemingway's The Snows of Kilimanjaro, read by actor Charlton Heston. The story opens in a safari camp in Africa. Harry, a writer, has developed gangrene and is being nursed by his wife. Kilimanjaro is a snow-covered mountain 19,710 feet high and is said to be the highest mountain in Africa. Its western summit is called by the Maasai Ngaji Ngai, the house of God. Close to the western summit, there is the dried and frozen carcass of a leopard. No one has explained what the leopard was seeking at that altitude. The marvelous thing is that it's painless, he said. That's how you know when it starts. Is it really? Absolutely. I'm awfully sorry about the odor, though. That must bother you. Don't. Please don't. Look at them, he said. Now, is it sight or is it scent that brings them like that? The cot the man lay on was in the wide shade of a mimosa tree. And as he looked out past the shade onto the glare of the plain, there were three of the big birds squatted obscenely, while in the sky a dozen more sailed, making quick-moving shadows as they passed. They've been there since the day the truck broke down, he said. Today's the first time any have lit in the ground. I watched the way they sailed very carefully at first, in case I ever wanted to use them in a story. <laughs> That's funny now. I wish you wouldn't, she said. I'm only talking, he said. It's much easier if I talk, but I don't want to bother you. You know, it doesn't bother me, she said. It's that I've gotten so very nervous not being able to do anything. I, I think we might make it as easy as we can until the plane comes. Or until the plane doesn't come. Please tell me what I can do. There must be something I can do. Well, you can take the leg off. That might stop it. No, I doubt it. Or you can shoot me. You're a good shot now. I taught you to shoot, didn't I? Please don't talk that way. Couldn't I read to you? Read what? Anything in the book bag that we haven't read. I can't listen to it, he said. Talking's the easiest. We quarrel. That makes the time pass. I don't quarrel. I never want to quarrel. Let's not quarrel anymore. No matter how nervous we get. Maybe they'll be back with another truck today. Maybe the plane will come. I don't want to move, the man said. There's no sense in moving now except to make it easier for you. That's cowardly. Can't you let a man die as comfortably as he can without calling him names? What's the use of slanging me? You're not going to die. Don't be silly. I'm dying now. Ask those bastards. He looked over to where the huge, filthy birds sat, their naked heads sunk in the hunched feathers. A fourth planes down to run quick-legged and then waddle slowly towards the others. They're around every camp. You never notice them. You can't die if you don't give up. Where did you read that? You're such a bloody fool. You might think about someone else. Oh, for Christ's sake, he said, that's been my trade. He lay then and was quiet for a while and looked across the heat shimmer of the plain to the edge of the bush. There were a few tummies that showed minute and white against the yellow, and far off he saw a herd of zebra white against the green of the bush. This was a pleasant camp under big trees against a hill with good water and close by a nearly dry water hole where sand grouse flighted in the mornings. Wouldn't you like me to read, she asked. She was sitting on a canvas chair beside his cot. There's a breeze coming up. No, thanks. Maybe the truck will come. I don't give a damn about the truck. 
I do. You give a damn about so many things that I don't. Not so many, Harry. What about a drink? It's supposed to be bad for you. It's said in blacks to avoid all alcohol. You shouldn't drink. Mono, he shouted. Yes, buona. Bring whiskey soda. Yes, buona. You shouldn't, she said. That's what I mean by giving up. It says it's bad for you. I know it's bad for you. No, he said. It's good for me. So now it was all over, he thought. So now he would never have a chance to finish it. So this was the way it ended, in a bickering over a drink. Since the gangrene started in his right leg, he had no pain, and with the pain, the horror had gone. And all he felt now was a great tiredness and anger that this was the end of it. For this that now was coming, he had very little curiosity. For years it had obsessed him, but now it meant nothing in itself. It was strange how easy being tired enough made it. Now he would never write the things that he'd saved to write until he knew enough to write them well. Well, he would not have to fail at trying to write them either. Maybe you could never write them. That was why you put them off and delayed the starting. Well, he would never know now. I wish we'd never come, the woman said. She was looking at him, holding the glass and biting her lip. You never would have gotten anything like this in Paris. You always said you loved Paris. We could have stayed in Paris or gone anywhere. I'd have gone anywhere. I said I'd go anywhere you wanted. If you wanted to shoot, we could have gone shooting in Hungary and been comfortable. Your bloody money, he said. That's not fair, she said. It was always yours as much as mine. I left everything and I went wherever you wanted to go and I've done what you wanted to do, but I wish we'd never come here. You said you loved it. I did when you were all right, but... No, I hate it. I don't see why that had to happen to your leg. What have we done to have that happen to us? I suppose what I did was to forget to put iodine on it when I first scratched it. Then I didn't pay any attention to it because I never infect. Then later, when I got bad, it was probably using that weak carbolic solution when the other antiseptics ran out that paralyzed the minute blood vessels and started the gangrene. He looked at her. What else? I don't mean that. Well, if we'd hired a good mechanic instead of a half-baked Kikuyu driver, he would have checked the oil and never burned out that bearing in the truck. I don't mean that. If you hadn't left your own people, your goddamned old Westbury, Saratoga, Palm Beach people, to take me on... Why, well, I loved you. That's not fair. I love you now. I'll always love you. Don't you love me? No, said the man. I don't think so. I never have. Harry, what are you saying? You're out of your head. No, I haven't any head to go out of. Don't drink that, she said. Darling, please don't drink that. We have to do everything we can. You do it, he said. I'm tired. Now in his mind, he saw a railway station at Karagach, and he was standing with his pack, and that was the headlight of the Simplon Orient, cutting the dark now, and he was leaving Thrace then, after the retreat. That was one of the things he'd saved to write, with in the morning at breakfast, looking out the window and seeing snow on the mountains in Bulgaria, and Nansen's secretary asking the old man if it were snow, and the old man looking at it and saying, No, that's not snow. It's too early for snow. And the secretary repeating to the other girls, No, you see, it's not snow. And them all saying, It's not snow. We were mistaken. But it was the snow, all right. And he sent them on into it when he evolved exchange of populations. And it was snow they tramped along in until they died that winter. It was snow, too, that fell all Christmas week that year up in the Garital. That year they lived in the woodcutter's house with a big square porcelain stove that filled half the room. 
and they slept on mattresses filled with beech leaves. The time the deserter came with his feet bloody in the snow, he said the police were right behind him and they gave him woolen socks and held the gendarmes talking until the tracks had drifted over. Insurance on Christmas Day, the snow is so bright it hurts your eyes when you looked out from the wine stube and saw everyone coming home for he'd spent gambling. But he'd never written a line of that. Nor that cold, bright Christmas day with the mountains showing across the plain that Barker had flown across the lines to bomb the Austrian officers' leave train, machine-gunning them as they scattered and ran. He remembered Barker afterwards coming into the mess and starting to tell about it, and how quiet it got, and then somebody saying, You bloody, murderous bastard. Those were the same Austrians they killed then that he skied with later. No, not the same. Hans that he skied with all that year had been in the Kaiser Jaegers, and when they went hunting hares together up the little valley above the sawmill, they talked of the fighting on Pesubio and of the attack on Pertica and Asoloni, and he'd never written a word of that, nor of Monticorno, nor the Siete Comum, nor of Arciedo. Where did we stay in Paris? he asked the woman who was sitting by him in a canvas chair now, in Africa. At the Creum. You know that. Why do I know that? Well, that's where we always stayed. No, not always. There, and at the Pavillon Henri IV in Saint-Germain. You said you loved it there. Love is a dunghill, said Harry, and I'm the cock that gets on it to crow. If you have to go away, she said, is it absolutely necessary to kill off everything you leave behind? I mean, do you have to take away everything... You have to kill your horse and your wife and burn your saddle and your armor. Yes, he said. Your damn money was my armor, my swift and my armor. Don't. All right. I'll stop. I don't want to hurt you. It's a little bit late now. All right, then. I'll go on hurting you. It's more amusing. The only thing I ever really like to do with you, I can't do now. Now, that's not true. You like to do many things, and everything you wanted to do, I did. Oh, for Christ's sake, stop bragging, will you? He looked at her and saw her crying. Listen, he said, do you think it's fun to do this? I don't know why I'm doing it. It's trying to kill to keep yourself alive, I imagine. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanet. This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents the second part of The Snows of Kilimanjaro by Ernest Hemingway, read by actor Charlton Heston. An injured writer on safari in Africa reminisces about his relationships, his life, and his career.
I didn't mean to start this, and now I'm crazy as a coot and being as cruel to you as I can be. Don't pay any attention, darling, to what I say. I love you, really. You know I love you. I've never loved anyone else the way I love you. He slipped into the familiar lie he made his bread and butter by. You're sweet to me. You bitch, she said. You rich bitch. Ah, that's poetry. I'm full of poetry now. Rot and poetry. Rotten poetry. Stop it, Harry. Why do you have to turn into a devil now? I don't like to leave anything, the man said. I don't like to leave things behind. It was evening now, and he'd been asleep. The sun was gone behind the hill, and there was a shadow all across the plain, and the small animals were feeding close to camp, quick dropping heads and switching tails. He watched them keeping well out away from the bush now. The birds no longer waited on the ground. They were all perched heavily in a tree. There were many more of them. His personal boy was sitting by the bed. Nim Sahib's gone to shoot, the boy said. Does Buena want? Nothing. She'd gone to kill a piece of meat, and knowing how he liked to watch the game, she'd gone well away so she would not disturb this little pocket of the plane that he could see. And she was always thoughtful, he thought, on anything she knew about or had read or that she'd ever heard. It was not her fault that when he went to her, he was already over. How could a woman know that you meant nothing that you said, that you spoke only from habit and to be comfortable? After he no longer meant what he said, his lies were more successful with women than when he'd told them the truth. It was not so much that he lied as that there was no truth to tell. He'd had his life and it was over, and then he went on living it again with different people and more money, with the best of the same places and some new ones. You kept from thinking, and it was all marvelous. You were equipped with good inside, so you didn't go to pieces that way, the way most of them had. And you made an attitude that you cared nothing for the work you used to do, now that you could no longer do it. But in yourself, you said that you would write about these people, about the very rich, that you were really not of them, but a spy in their country. That you would leave it and write of it, and for once it would be written by someone who knew what he was writing about. But he would never do it, because each day of not writing, of comfort, of being that which he despised, dulled his ability and softened his will to work so that finally he did no work at all. The people he knew now were all much more comfortable when he didn't work. Africa was where he'd been happiest in the good time of his life, so he'd come out here to start again. They'd made this safari with a minimum of comfort. There was no hardship, but there was no luxury, and he'd thought that he could get back into training that way, that in some way he could work the fat off his soul the way a fighter went into the mountains to work and train in order to burn it out of his body. She liked it. She said she loved it. She loved anything that was exciting, that involved a change of scene where there were new people and where things were pleasant. And he'd felt the illusion of returning strength of will to work. Now, if this was how it ended, and he knew it was, he must not turn like some snake biting itself because his back was broken. It wasn't this woman's fault. If it had not been she, it would have been another. If he lived by a lie, he should try to die by it. He heard a shot behind the hill. She shot very well, this good, this rich bitch, this kindly caretaker and destroyer of his talent. Nonsense. He destroyed his talent himself. Why should he blame this woman? Because she kept him well. He destroyed his talent by not using it. 
by his betrayals of himself and what he believed in, by drinking so much that he blunted the edge of his perceptions, by laziness, by sloth and by snobbery, by pride and by prejudice, by hook and by crook. What was this, a catalog of old books? <laughs> what was his talent anyway? It was a talent, all right, but instead of using it, he'd traded on it. It was never what he had done, but always what he could do. And he'd chosen to make his living with something else instead of a pen or a pencil. It was strange, too, wasn't it, that when he fell in love with another woman, that woman should always have more money than the last one. But when he no longer was in love, when he was only lying, as to this woman now, who had the most money of all, who had all the money there was, who had had a husband and children, who had taken lovers and been dissatisfied with them, and who loved him dearly as a writer, as a man, as a companion, and as a proud possession. It was strange that when he did not love her at all and was lying, that he should be able to give her more for her money than when he had really loved. We must all be cut out for what we do, he thought. However you make your living is where your talent lies. He had sold vitality in one form or another all his life. And when your affections are not too involved, you give much better value for the money. He had found that out, but he would never write that now either. No, he would not write that, although it was well worth writing. Now she came in sight, walking across the open toward the camp. She was wearing jodhpurs and carrying her rifle. The two boys had a tummy slung, and they were coming along behind her. She was a damn nice woman, too. He'd as soon be in bed with her as anyone. Rather with her. <laughs> because she was richer. Uh, because she was very pleasant and appreciative. And because she never made scenes. And now this life that she had built again was coming to a term because he had not used iodine two weeks ago when a thorn had scratched his knee as they moved forward trying to photograph a herd of water bucks standing. Their heads up, peering while their nostrils searched the air. Their ears spread wide to hear the first noise that would send them rushing into the bush. They'd bolted, too, before he got the picture. Here she came now. He turned his head in the cot to look toward her. Hello, he said. I shot a Tommy Ram, she told him. He'll make you good broth, and I'll have them mash some potatoes with a clim. How do you feel? Much better. Isn't that lovely? You know, I thought perhaps you would. You were sleeping when I left. I had a good sleep. Did you walk far? No, just around behind the hill. I made quite a good shot in the Tommy. You shoot marvelously, you know. I love it. I I've loved Africa, really. If you're all right, it's the most fun that I've ever had. You don't know the fun it's been to shoot with you. I've loved the country. Yeah, I love it, too. Darling, you don't know how marvelous it is to see you feeling better. I couldn't stand it when you felt that way. You won't talk to me like that again, will you promise me? No, he said. I don't remember what I said. You don't have to destroy me, do you? I'm only a middle-aged woman who loves you and wants to do what you want to do. I've been destroyed two or three times already. You, you wouldn't want to destroy me again, would you? I'd like to destroy you a few times in bed, he said. Yes, that's the good destruction. That's the way we're made to be destroyed. The plane will be here tomorrow. How do you know? I'm sure. It's bound to come. The boys have the wood already and the grass to make the smudge. 
I went down and looked at it again today. There's plenty of room to land, and we have the smudges ready at both ends. What makes you think it'll come tomorrow? I'm sure it will. It's overdue now. Then in town, they'll fix up your leg, and then we'll have some good destruction. Not that dreadful talking kind. Should we have a drink? The sun's down. Do you think you should? I'm having one. We'll have one together. Molo, let you do a whiskey soda, she called. You'd better put on your mosquito boots, he told her. I'll wait till I bathe. While it grew dark, they drank, and just before it was dark and there was no longer enough light to shoot, a hyena crossed the open on his way around the hill. That bastard crosses there every night, the man said, every night for two weeks. He's the one makes the noise at night. I don't mind it. You're a filthy animal, though. Drinking together with no pain now except the discomfort of lying in the one position, the boys lighting a fire, its shadow jumping on the tents, he could feel the return of acquiescence in this life of pleasant surrender. She was very good to him. He had been cruel and unjust in the afternoon. She was a fine woman. Marvelous, really. And just then it occurred to him that he was going to die. It came with a rush. Not as a rush of water nor of wind, but of a sudden evil-smelling emptiness. And the odd thing was that the hyena slipped lightly along the edge of it. What is it, Harry? she asked him. Nothing, he said. He had better move over to the other side, to windward. Did Molo change the dressing? Yes, I'm just using the boric now. How do you feel? A little wobbly. I'm going into bathe, she said. I'll be right out. I'll eat with you, and then we'll put the cot in. So, he said to himself, we did well to stop the quarreling. He'd never quarreled much with this woman, while with the women that he loved, he'd quarreled so much that they'd finally always, with the corrosion of the quarreling, killed what they had together. He'd loved too much, demanded too much, and he wore it all out. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of Harper Collins Publishers Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly & Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanets. This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents the third section of The Snows of Kilimanjaro, written by Ernest Hemingway and read by actor Charlton Heston. In this story, Hemingway uses some of his own experiences as a war correspondent. He remembered the good times with them all and the quarrels. They always picked the finest places to have the quarrels. And why had they always quarreled when he was feeling best? He'd never written any of that because at first he never wanted to hurt anyone. And then it seemed as though there was enough to write without it. 
But he'd always thought that he would write it finally. There was so much to write. He'd seen the world change, not just the events, although he'd seen many of them and had watched the people. But he had seen the subtler change, and he could remember how the people were at different times. He'd been in it, and he'd watched it, and it was his duty to write of it. But now he never would. How do you feel, she said. She'd come out from the tent now after her bath. All right. Could you eat now? He saw Molo behind her with a folding table and the other boy with the dishes. I want to write, he said. You ought to take some broth to keep your strength up. I'm going to die tonight, he said. I don't need my strength up. Don't be melodramatic, Harry, please, she said. Why don't you use your nose? I'm rotted halfway up my thigh now. What the hell should I fool with broth for? Molo, bring whiskey soda. Please take the broth, she said gently. All right. The broth was too hot. He had to hold it in the cup until it cooled enough to take it, and then he just got it down without gagging. You're a fine woman, he said. Don't pay any attention to me. She looked at him with her well-known, well-loved face from spur in town and country, only a little the worse for drink, only a little the worse for bed. But town and country never showed those good breasts and those useful thighs and those lightly smaller back-caressing hands. And as he looked and saw her well-known pleasant smile, he felt death come again. This time there was no rush. It was a puff, as of a wind that makes a candle flicker and the flame go tall. They can bring my nut out later and hang it from the tree and build the fire up. I'm not going in the tent tonight. It, it's not worth moving. It's a clear night. There won't be any rain. So this was how you died in whispers that you didn't hear. Well, there would be no more quarreling. He had promised that. The one experience that he'd never had, he was not going to spoil now. He probably would. You spoiled everything. But perhaps he wouldn't. You can't take dictation, can you? I never learned, she told him. That's all right. There wasn't time, of course, although it seemed as though it telescoped so that you might put it all into one paragraph if you could get it right. There was a log house, chinked white with mortar on a hill above the lake. There was a bell and a pole by the door to call the people into meals. Behind the house were fields, and behind the fields was the timber. A line of Lombardy poplars ran from the house to the dock. Other poplars ran along the point. A road went up to the hills along the edge of the timber, and along that road he picked blackberries. Then that log house was burned down, and all the guns that had been on deerfoot racks above the open fireplace were burned. And afterwards their barrels with the lead melted in the magazines and the stocks burned away lay out in a heap of ashes that were used to make lye for the big iron soap kettles. And you asked Grandfather if you could have them to play with, and he said no. You see, they were his guns still, and he never bought any others, nor did he hunt any more. The house was rebuilt in the same place, out of lumber now, and painted white. And from its porch you saw the poplars and the lake beyond, but there were never any more guns. The barrels of the guns that had hung in the deer feet in the wall of the log house lay out there in the heap of ashes, and no one ever touched them. In the Black Forest, after the war, we rented a trout stream, and there were two ways to walk to it. One was down the valley from Treberg and around the valley road in the shade of the trees that bordered the white road, and then up a side road that went up through the hills past many small farms with the big Schwarzwald houses until that road crossed the stream. That was where our fishing began. 
The other way was to climb steeply up to the edge of the woods and then go across the top of the hills through the pine woods and then out to the edge of a meadow and down across this meadow to the bridge. There were birches along the stream, and it was not big, but now clear and fast, with pools where it had come under the roots of the birches. At the hotel in Treberg, the proprietor had a fine season. It was very pleasant. We were all great friends. The next year came the inflation, and the money he'd made the year before was not enough to buy supplies to open the hotel. And he hanged himself. You could dictate that, but you couldn't dictate the Place Contrescarpe, where the flower sellers dyed their flowers in the street, and the dye ran over the paving where the autobus started, and the old men and the women always drunk on wine and bad mock, and the children with their noses running in the cold, the smell of dirty sweat and poverty and drunkenness at the Café des Amateurs, and the whores at the Balmusette they lived above, the concierge who entertained the trooper of the Garde Republicaine in her loge, his horsehair-plumed helmet on a chair, the locataire across the hall, whose husband was a bicycle racer, and her joy that morning at the Cremerie, when she'd opened Lotto and seen where he placed third in the Paris Tour, his first big race. She'd blushed and laughed and then gone upstairs crying with a yellow sporting page in her hand. The husband of the woman who ran the Balmusette drove a taxi, and when he, Harry, had to take an early plane, the husband knocked on the door to wake him, and they each drank a glass of white wine at the zinc of the bar before they started. He knew his neighbors in that quarter then because they all were poor. Around that place, there were two kinds, the drunkards and the sportifs. The drunkards killed their poverty that way. The sportifs took it out in exercise. They were the descendants of the communards, and it was no struggle for them to know their politics. They knew who had shot their fathers, their relatives, their brothers, and their friends when the Versailles troops came in and took the town after the commune and executed anyone they could catch with calloused hands or who wore a cap or carried any other sign he was a working man. And in that poverty and in that quarter, across the street from a boucherie chevalin and a wine cooperative, he'd written the start of all he was to do. There never was another part of Paris that he loved like that. The sprawling trees, the old white plastered houses painted brown below, the long green of the autobus and that round square, the purple flower dye on the paving, sudden drop down the hill of the Rue Cardinal Lemoine to the river, and the other way, the narrow, crowded world of the Rue Mouffetard. The street that ran up toward the Pantheon, and the other that he always took with the bicycle, the only asphalted street in all that quarter, smooth under the tires, with the high, narrow houses and the cheap, tall hotel where Paul Verlaine had died. There were only two rooms in the apartments where they lived, and he had a room in the top floor of that hotel that cost him 60 francs a month where he did his writing. And from it he could see the roofs and chimney pots and all the hills of Paris. From the apartment you could only see the wood and coal man's place. He sold wine, too. Bad wine. The golden horse's head outside the Boucherie Chevalin, where the carcasses hung yellow, gold, and red in the open window, and the green-painted cooperative where they bought their wine. Good wine and cheap. The rest was plaster walls and the windows of the neighbors. The neighbors who at night, when someone lay drunk in the street, moaning and groaning in that typical French ivresse that you were propagandized to believe did not exist, would open their windows and then the murmur of talk. Where is the policeman? When you don't want him, the bugger's always there. He's sleeping with some concierge. Get the agent. Till someone threw a bucket of water from a window and the moaning stopped. What's that? Water. Ah, that's intelligent. And the window's shutting. 
Marine is from the menage, protesting against the eight-hour day, saying, if her husband works until six, he gets only a little drunk on the way home, does not waste too much. If he works only until five, he is drunk every night, and one has no money. It is the wife of the working man who suffers from this shortening of hours. Wouldn't you like some more broth, the woman asked him now? No, thank you very much. It's awfully good. Try just a little. I would like a whiskey soda. It's not good for you. No, it's bad for me. Cole Porter wrote the words and the music, this knowledge that you're going mad for me. You know I like you to drink. Oh, yes, only it's bad for me. When she goes, he thought, I'll have all I want. Not all I want, but all there is. I... He was tired. Too tired. He was going to sleep a little while. He lay still, and death was not there. It must have gone around another street. It went in pairs on bicycles and moved absolutely silently on the pavements. No, he'd never written about Paris. Not the Paris that he cared about. But what about the rest that he'd never written? What about the ranch? And the silvered gray of the sagebrush, the quick, clear water in the irrigation ditches, and the heavy green of the alfalfa? The trail went up into the hills, and the cattle in the summer were shy as deer. The bawling and the steady noise and slow-moving mass raising a dust as you brought them down in the fall. And behind the mountains, the clear sharpness of the peak in the evening light, and riding down along the trail in the moonlight right across the valley. Now he remembered coming down through the timber in the dark, holding the horse's tail when you couldn't see, and all the stories that he meant to write. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and & Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanet. This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents the fourth and final section of Ernest Hemingway's The Snows of Kilimanjaro, read by Charlton Heston. The story's conclusion brings a grim resolution to a writer's regrets about his unused talent. About the half-wit chore boy who was left at the ranch that time and told not to let anyone get any hay. That old bastard from the forks who'd beaten the boy when he'd worked for him, stopping to get some feed. The boy refusing, and the old man saying he'd beat him again. The boy got the rifle from the kitchen and shot him when he tried to come into the barn. And when they came back to the ranch, he'd been dead a week, frozen in the corral, and the dogs had eaten part of him. But what was left, you packed on a sled, wrapped in a blanket, and roped on, and you got the boy to help you haul it. And the two of you took it out over the road on skis and 60 miles down to town to turn the boy over. 
he having no idea he would be arrested. Thinking he'd done his duty and that you were his friend and he would be rewarded. He'd helped to haul the old man in so everyone could know how bad the old man had been and how he'd tried to steal some feed that didn't belong to him. And when the sheriff put the handcuffs on the boy, he couldn't believe it. Then he started to cry. That was one story he'd saved to write. He knew at least 20 good stories from out there, and he'd never written one. Why? You tell them why, he said. Why what, dear? Why nothing. She didn't drink so much now since she had him. But if he lived, he would never write about her. He knew that now. Nor about any of them. The rich were dull, and they drank too much, or they played too much backgammon. They were dull, and they were repetitious. <laughs> he remembered poor Julian and his romantic awe of them, and how he started a story once that began, The very rich are different from you and me. And how someone had said to Julian, Yes, they have more money. <laughs> but that was not humorous to Julian. He thought they were a special, glamorous race, and when he found they weren't, it wrecked him just as much as any other thing that wrecked him. He'd been contemptuous of those who wrecked. He didn't have to like it because you understood it. He could beat anything, he thought, because nothing could hurt him if he didn't care. All right. Now he would not care for death. One thing he'd always dreaded was the pain. He could stand pain as well as any man until it went on too long and wore him out, but... Here he had something that had hurt him frightfully, and just when he'd felt it breaking him, the pain had stopped. He remembered long ago when Williamson, the bombing officer, had been hit by a stick bomb someone in a German patrol had thrown as he was coming in through the wire that night, and screaming and begged everyone to kill him. He was a fat man, very brave and a good officer, although addicted to fantastic shows. But that night he was caught in the wire with a flare lighting him up and his bowels spilled out into the wire, so when they brought him in alive, they had to cut him loose. Shoot me, Harry, for Christ's sake, shoot me. They'd had an argument one time about our Lord never sending you anything you couldn't bear, and someone's theory had been that meant that at a certain time the pain passed you out automatically. But he'd always remembered Williamson that night. Nothing passed out Williamson until he gave him all his morphine tablets that he'd always saved to use himself. And they didn't work right away. Still, this now that he had was very easy. And if it was no worse as it went on, there was nothing to worry about. Except that he would rather be in better company. He thought a little about the company that he would like to have. No, he thought... When everything you do, you do too long and do too late. You can't expect to find the people still there. The people all are gone. The party's over. And you are with your hostess now. I'm getting as bored with dying as with everything else, he thought. It's a bore, he said out loud. What is, my dear? Anything you do too bloody long. He looked at her face between him and the fire. She was leaning back in the chair, and the firelight shone on her pleasantly lined face, and he could see that she was sleepy. He heard the hyena make a noise just outside the range of the fire. I've been writing, he said, but I got tired. Do you think you'll be able to sleep? Pretty sure. Why don't you turn in? I'd like to sit here with you. Do you feel anything strange, she asked him. No, just a little sleepy. I do, he said. He just felt death come by again. You know, the only thing I've never lost is curiosity, he said to her. You've never lost anything. You're the most complete man I've ever known. Christ, he said. 
How little a woman knows. What is that, your intuition? Because just then, death had come and rested its head in the foot of the cot, and he could smell its breath. Never believe any of that about a scythe and a skull, he told her. It can be two bicycle policemen as easily. Or be a bird, or it can have a wide snout like a hyena. It had moved up on him now, but it had no shape anymore. It simply occupied space. Tell it to go away. It didn't go away, but moved a little closer. You've got a hell of a breath, he told it. You stinking bastard. It moved up closer to him still, and now he couldn't speak to it. And when it saw he couldn't speak, it came a little closer. And now he tried to send it away without speaking, but it moved in on him so its weight was all on his chest. And when it crouched there, and he couldn't move or speak, he heard the woman say, One is asleep now. Take the cot up very gently and carry it into the tent. He couldn't speak to tell her to make it go away, and it crouched now heavier so that he couldn't breathe. And then, while they lifted the cot, Suddenly it was all right, and the weight went from his chest. It was morning, and it had been morning for some time, and he heard the plane. It showed very tiny and then made a wide circle, and the boys ran out and lit the fires using kerosene and piled on grass so there were two big smudges at each end of the level place, and the morning breeze blew them toward the camp, and the plane circled twice more, low this time, and then glided down and leveled off and landed smoothly, and coming walking toward him was old Compton, in slacks, a tweed jacket, and a brown felt hat. What's the matter, old cock? Compton said. Bad leg, he told him. Will you have some breakfast? Mm, thanks, I'll just have some tea. It's the push moth, you know. I won't be able to take the mem side. There's only room for one. Your lorry's on the way. Helen had taken Compton aside and was speaking to him. Compton came back more cheery than ever. We'll get you right in, he said. I'll be back for the ma'am. Now, I'm afraid I'll have to stop at a roofer to refuel. We'd better get going. What about the team? I don't really care about it, you know. The boys had picked up the cot and carried it around the green tents and down along the rock and out onto the plain and along past the smudges that were burning brightly now, the grass all consumed, and the wind fanning the fire to the little plain. It was difficult getting him in, but once in, he lay back in the leather seat and the leg was stuck straight out to one side of the seat where Compton sat. Compton started the motor and got in. He waved to Helen and to the boys, and as the clatter moved into the old familiar roar, they swung around with Compey watching for warthog holes and roared bumping along the stretch between the fires, and with a last bump rose and he saw them all standing below waving in the camp beside the hill flattening now, and the plain spreading, clumps of trees and the bush flattening while the game trails ran now smoothly to the dry water holes. And there was a new water that he'd never known of. The zebra, small rounded backs now, and the wildebeest, big-headed dots seeming to climb as they moved in long fingers across the plain. Now scattering as the shadow came toward them, they were tiny now, and the movement had no gallop. And the plain, as far as you could see, gray-yellow now, and ahead old Compey's tweed back and the brown felt hat. Then they were over the first hills, and the wildebeest were trailing up them. And then they were over mountains with sudden depths of green-rising forest and the solid bamboo slopes. And then the heavy forest again, sculptured into peaks and hollows until they crossed. And hills sloped down, and then another plain, hot now, and purple-brown, bumpy with heat, and Compey looking back to see how he was riding. Then there were other mountains, dark ahead. And then, instead of going on to Arusha, they turned left. He evidently figured that they had the gas. And looking down, he saw a pink sifting cloud moving over the ground and in the air, like the first snow in a blizzard that comes from nowhere. 
and he knew the locusts were coming up from the south. Then they began to climb, and they were going to the east, it seemed. And then it darkened, and they were in a storm. The rain so thick it seemed like flying through a waterfall. And then they were out, and Compy turned his head and grinned and pointed. And there ahead, all he could see as wide as all the world, great, high, and unbelievably white in the sun, was the square top of Kilimanjaro. And then he knew that there was where he was going. Just then, the hyena stopped whimpering in the night and started to make a strange, human, almost crying sound. The woman heard it and stirred uneasily. She didn't wake. In her dream, she was at the house on Long Island, and it was the night before her daughter's debut. Somehow her father was there, and he'd been very rude. Then the noise the hyena made was so loud she woke, and for a moment she didn't know where she was, and she was very afraid. Then she took the flashlight and shone it on the other cot that they'd carried in after Harry had gone to sleep. She could see his bulk under the mosquito bar, but somehow he'd gotten his leg out and it hung down alongside the cot. The dressings had all come down and she couldn't look at it. Molo, she called. Molo, Molo. Then she said, Harry, Harry. Then her voice rising, Harry, please. Oh, Harry. There was no answer and she couldn't hear him breathing. Outside the tent, the hyena made the same strange noise that had awakened her, but she did not hear him for the beating of her heart. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly & Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanet.